I don't want you to get too excited to think that we're going to cover two stanzas in one Sunday. <laughs> or too disappointed. I don't know which one it is. But uh, we are going to do an overview of those two stanzas you just heard read. Uh, but we'll return in the weeks to come to see more detail, wonderful detail in these passages here. Linguist Eugene Nida said that the Zulu language has at least 120 words to describe walking. 120 words to describe walking. How would you like to translate that language? Or try to learn that language? They have words for walking presumptuously. Walking crouched down when hunting. Walking with tight clothes on or walking lethargically, or walking fast, or slow, or et cetera. They have a different word in their language for every single one of those, 120 to be exact. Of course, we know there are many different ways that you can walk, as the Zulu language points out. But there are also many different ways that you can walk as a believer, spiritually. How are we to walk as Christians, spiritually speaking? The Bible identifies this for us. In Ephesians 4.1 it says to walk worthy of our calling. In Isaiah 58 the prophet says to walk uprightly. In 1 John 1.7 the apostle says to walk in the light. Micah 6.8 says to walk humbly. 1 John 2.6 says to walk as Jesus walked. And so here we come to Psalm 119, and we've looked at verses 105 to 112 in the past three weeks and discovered that God is shining a lamp, a light on the path that we are to walk. Now the two stanzas that we're looking at this morning, the Psalmic stanza and the Ion stanza, verses 113 through 128, tell us how to walk on that path. It's clearly seen. Now how are you going to do it, Christian? In our study of Psalm 19, we've made it all the way to this point, to verse 113. We've covered 14 of the 22 stanzas, and today we're going to look at this overview, and a wonderful overview it is. The noon stanza, as I mentioned to you, uh, covers what it means to see the light, to see the path clearly. And then verses 13 through 128, 113 to 128, how? To walk it. So, how are we going to walk this well lit path? Um, well, these two stanzas pointed out to us. Notice that verse 113 begins with the words, I hate double minded. I hate the double minded. And then ends with, I hate every false way. Sandwiched in between these two verses are 14 other verses that give directions, give examples of how we are to walk circumspectly as believers would. So let's pick these stanzas off one at a time and see what, they can, what light they can shed on what it means to walk with God as we should. First of all, I want you, I've titled the psalmic stanza, Be Determined to Walk with God. Be Determined to Walk with God. You say you want to walk with God. How would anybody know it? How does anybody know that you actually believe that you'd like to walk with God? How does anybody know that by watching your life? How can they tell? 
Here's the good news. If you've been regenerated by God, he has placed in you a desire to walk with him. He's given you a new heart. He wants you to walk with him. So he gives you the desire to do so. He gives you desire to please him and and do so daily. But now, even with the presence of the Holy Spirit, we need to cooperate with him, that is the Holy Spirit, by being determined to follow Christ with our whole heart, diligently. Walking with God and all that entails doesn't come naturally to us. Uh, We've proven that probably within the last 24 hours. It's not a natural thing for us. In fact, the opposite is true. Our natural inclination is what? To go away from God, to drift away from Him. All the commands of Scripture affirm this fact that our natural bent is to go away from God. Our Christian life is kind of like being in a river. And what happens in a river if you're not swimming upstream? You're floating downstream. That's our natural bent, our tendency. And so we must have a determination to swim against the current, to go against what our natural bent is. This is the starting point in our walk with God. We must have a determination to do so. Determined, first of all, to obey Him. Look at verse 113. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Sounds a little bit off-putting, doesn't it? As Christians, we've been told not to hate. We tell our children not to use that word. Um, But, you know, there is disagreement over how this verse ought to be translated. But after some study, I think uh, it's clear to me that the author is not primarily saying that he hates the double-minded people, but that more likely he hates his own double-minded thoughts, his own double-minded ways. That's what he hates. And I think that's what every true Christian hates, isn't it? This battle with double-minded thinking, wanting the world, wanting God, wanting to please Him, but seeing to be doing the opposite. This is the battle, isn't it? He hates his own double-minded thoughts and ways. He despises those thoughts that draw him away from God, away from his ways. The the reason that the author begins here to instruct us how to walk with God is because the battle for your consistent God-honoring walk begins in your head. You must determine to walk with God. This is not outside of the the truth of the matter that the Holy Spirit indwells you or that He gives you the power to do these things that we're talking about or that you even have a desire to do it. It's, It's not suggesting that that's not the truth. He's just saying all that is true, but you still have to try. There is still a required effort, a cooperation, participation with the Holy Spirit in these matters. I despise my divided thoughts. What are thoughts that are divided? What what are those? What's he talking about? Things like this, for example. Well, everyone else is doing this, so it must be okay. That's a divided thought. It's a double-minded thought. Well, this isn't that bad of a sin. Look at this guy. I mean, he's way worse. I'm not sure that's that big of a deal not to serve, not to give. God certainly understands my circumstances. He'll give me a pass on this one. That's double-minded thinking, according to Scripture. Double-minded thoughts are thoughts that make excuses for disobedience, basically. The person who wants to walk with God must be determined to obey and put these kind of thoughts away. A great example of double-mindedness is found in the story of 1 Kings 18. You remember the, the setting. Elijah, the prophet, was getting very frustrated with the people of Israel. 
They kept saying they want to follow Jehovah, but they kept following Baal, the false god. So finally, Elijah gathered a large group of the people of Israel on top of Mount Carmel and said the following, How long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Stop being double-minded. Stop thinking you can play both sides. Choose one or the other. Jesus said this to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 also. He says, I'm tired of you being lukewarm. I'm tired of you playing both sides of the fence. Choose one or the other. Don't be double-minded. Jesus said it actually makes him sick to his stomach to the point of wanting to spew us out when we live like that. So who is God in your life? James calls people that are double-minded something unflattering. He says in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, For the person, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, what? Unstable in all his ways. The, the man James who walked with Christ, who grew up with Christ, said, those kind of people are unstable. So double-mindedness refers to those spiritually unstable people who know about God but aren't convinced he's better than what the world's offering. And so they keep vacillating between the both. They're, they're not determined to live for him, but they're, they're not convinced he's the right choice. So if you're not convinced that God is the right choice, will you follow him? Probably not. He demands too much. Just like if you aren't convinced the diet will work, you're not going to stay on it. You'll choose something else. The devil-minded person wants God and the world. They want the benefits that God offers to all who faithfully follow him. But they also want and can't resist what the world's offering. It seems pretty attractive. Right? They want to serve God and money, something that Jesus said was impossible. This is a vicious battle, isn't it? It's the battle against lukewarmness, double-mindedness. I think it's a battle for the soul. Many who have this difficult struggle get discouraged by the never-ending battle. I, I think that some of you could relate to the difficulty of this constant, ongoing fight with double-mindedness. And sometimes we lose hope in that battle because it seems like we're always experiencing defeat to one degree or another. But I want to encourage you with what the psalmist says here um, in verse 114. This is the hope that he offers. He says this in 114, you, speaking of God, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. That's where he found hope. We read this morning, or, or had it read to us, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. There's the hope. Instead of seeking the world, seek God. Believe the promises that he gives. Run to him, you double-minded, for refuge in your battle. So the first step in eliminating the double mind is to be determined to obey God. Draw a line in the sand for yourself. I will obey. 
I, when the Bible says serve, I will serve. When it says give, I will give. When it says love, I will love sacrificially. When it says discipline my kids, I will discipline my kids. When it says to pray, I will pray. Be determined to obey. Secondly, we see in verses 15, 8, 115, 118, 119, a determination to choose the right friends. Determined to choose the right friends. Listen to these verses, I read them again. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commands of my God. In other words, if you don't depart, I'm going to have a harder time obeying. Verse 118, you spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. This is an indication that the author knew the importance of which friends he kept. We don't need to remind one another how important friendships are, how greatly they influence our lives, our thoughts, our practice. Those who are closest to us will go a long way in determining how we act and think. This is why we're careful about who we allow to befriend our children. Not Johnny. Not that guy. You know, you need to stay over here with this guy. We, we have those kind of conversations with our young children regularly. If your sphere of influence is made up of ungodly people, guess what will be your tendency? Ungodliness. And it goes the same with gossips, immorality, greedy and selfish. If you surround yourself with those kind of people, your tendency will be to act like they do. This is why <laughs> we are careful with our children. So how do we proceed? If our sphere is made up of devil-minded people, those who try to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, you'll find yourself doing the same thing. But on the other hand, if you surround yourself with godly people who want to make much of Christ, who want to enjoy His church, you'll discover that you'll be encouraged to intimidate those folks as well. So the choice of the godly person is to surround themselves with godly people. How do we do that? Well, we be where they are. Where are they? Well, there's a lot of them in this room right now. Be with these folks. And these folks actually meet more than once a week. They actually have small groups they meet in. Meet with them. Participate in the things the church offers to help you grow spiritually. Be with godly people. You know a godly couple in this church? Invite them to your house. Let them rub off on you. This is a very good strategy. In verse 15, he makes, I think, a bold public announcement. He says, you evil people, depart. Be gone. Why? As he says in the second half of 115, so that I can obey God's commandments. He was choosing his friends very carefully. So do you want to walk with God? Then you must be determined to go all in with God. You must be determined to obey him. You must see him as your refuge, your shield, not the world. Instead of running to the world for help and encouragement, run to God and his people for those things. To faithfully walk with God, you cannot walk with evildoers in this world, is the point. Choose God. Thirdly, look what he says in verse, verses 116 and 117. What's the third step? 
of being determined to walk with God? He's praying to God, uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have a regard for your statutes continually. He's praying for help. He's praying for help. This is what the point is. We need to plead with God for help. We need his sustaining grace. We need the Spirit's guidance, the Spirit's stamina, strength to be able to walk the way God would have us walk. Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. So pray and ask that God will strengthen you. The difficult struggles of worldliness is why the author asked for God to help him, help him in that. It's too much for us, this struggle we face. We need God's help. We must have God's help, friends, to navigate this difficult path that we're on. And so we should ask. The author knows that the only solution for divided thinking is to be determined to obey, to choose the right friends, to call upon God for help. In the Middle Ages, when anyone wanted to enter the order of the Benedictine monks, they entered a period of testing, a period of preparation for monastery life. Once the monk was approved, uh, a ceremony ensued, and the induction ceremony of the monk candidate uh, included the monk standing before the audience, before the other monks, before the priests, and so forth, uh, reciting Psalm 119, verse 116 the verse you have in front of you. And they would do so with their arms outstretched, repeating it three times, saying, sustain me according to your promise and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. Sustain me according to your promise and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. Sustain me according to your promise and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. And then once he completed that, the entire congregation would say the very same words back to him with their arms outstretched, they would sing Gloria Patri, and the man became a monk. Beginning his journey with a realization and complete dependence on God's provision. And by the way, it's not just monks who need God, right? Unless God is for us, we will fail. Unless the Spirit strengthens us, we will fall. Every Christian grace, every Christian discipline requires the animating grace of God. We must daily ask for God's sustaining grace. Do you do it? What's your prayer when you get out of bed in the morning? Does it include a request for help? Are others in your life praying for your spiritual strength? As you gather with your family around worship time, do you pray for one another that the Lord would encourage and strengthen you as you walk with him? Are there people in your small group that are praying for your spiritual success? Do you have others in the church praying for you on a regular basis that you will not fail? You need that. Ask for God's help. And then in verse 120, we see something that seems to be out of place. He's giving, giving us ideas of what it takes to walk with God faithfully. The first three make complete sense. A commitment to obedience. A decision to choose the right friends. 
the necessity of praying for God's help. And then verse 120 says, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid for your judgments. It seems out of place a bit, doesn't it? Let me explain to you why it's not out of place. What we see here is fear and trembling, and a God, which is a godly mix of reverence and love. It's not a servile fear of a tyrant, but it's an intense realization that we see here that he's dealing with absolute holiness. The author helps us see what it means to be in relationship with God, the God of the universe, who is a consuming fire, but at the same time, a loving creator. As we begin our walk with God, we must assume this posture. God is holy. He is not the man upstairs. He's not that celestial Santa Claus. He's not my buddy. He's the God of the universe. What is he saying? What is the author saying? What am I saying to you? In order to walk faithfully with God, you must be determined to see his greatness. You must have a high view of God. If there's anything else in your life that is in a higher position, guess what's going to win out? That thing. It's critical that you and I maintain a high view of God as individuals and as a church. One of the first sermons I ever preached in this church back in 2003 was Ezekiel chapter 1 and the necessity of a high view of God. This is fundamental. You remember the Apostle John, the one that walked and talked with Jesus, the one he considered to be his closest friend, um, this one he went fishing with, this one that he probably sat around a campfire with, that friend of the Apostle John. When he encountered that one in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, that one that he considered a friend, how did John respond? Hey, Jesus, what's happening? No. Listen to how he responded. When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Did John have a high view of God? Oh my. Read Revelation 4 if you wonder about that. Unless we see the greatness and majesty of God until we establish with, without assail a high view of God, we will never be convinced of our need to make much of him or follow him. If following God is just another shallow option, you'll never follow him. Until we see the greatness of God, we will never truly know him. Why would you possibly be motivated to follow God if, if you think of him in a flippant manner? You won't follow him if that's your view of him. This gets us to the 16th stanza, Ion, which also gives us some important information about how we can walk this difficult path that we are all on. The first point in the Samak stanza, verses 113 to 120, is to be determined to obey God. 
Here in verses 121 through 128, we see a determination to look for God's help. You say, well, we covered that in verse 116. Well, the psalmist here in, in these eight verses expands it beautifully. He shows us the great need we have for God's involvement in our walk. I want you to notice the words, your servant, in these eight verses. It is the words that tie this stanza together. Now, what do you think that has to do with following God successfully? Those who faithfully walk with God are his servants. The servants of God follow his direction versus those who are his enemies. A servant follows his master's wishes. That's why these words find their place in this particular stanza. Those of us who follow God must view ourselves as his servants. We do what he says. Otherwise, you're not his servant. <laughs> you're a lone ranger. The servants of God follow him. As you make your way down these eight verses, you can see that this writer is intensely looking for God's help for he, his servant. The author of Psalm 123, verse 2, said it well. Behold, he said, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. We keep looking for help. We keep asking for help from the only one who can help. These verses demonstrate not only the supporting grace of God in life, but also the need to faithfully follow. We are his servants who need his help. When we determine to walk with God, we can confidently expect God's help. And this this stanza, verses 121 through 128, answers the question, why should God help you? Why should he help me? These are good questions, right? Who am I that God should help me? Joe, nothing. Why would God help you or me? Here's why. I got three answers from this text, 124. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. That's the first reason why he'll help you. He loves you. That's why he will help you. Just like you are determined to help your children. You love them. It's not like the obligation of helping these things that run around the house is really overwhelming. No, you, you love these children that God has given you. And so your natural response is one of love. Right? Help and love go together. Reasons why God will help? First of all, he's loving. He's concerned about your joy, your success, your fulfillment, your faithfulness. He will help you in this journey. Secondly, in verses 122, again in 124 and 125, we see that he helps his servants. Look at 122. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. 124, deal with your servant according to steadfast love and teach me your statutes. And then 125, I am your servant, give me understanding. 
He's reaching out to God for help on the basis of the fact that he serves God. God, it's me, your servant. Please help. You see, we have to understand that God is not impersonal or unmoved by the concerns of his servants, his children, the ones he loves. God is a loving God desiring your success, your faithful walk, your growth, your joy. This is what God wants. Just like an employer wants to help his employees. Because what the employees are doing actually helps the employer. It's the same relationship, even greater, that we have with God. Because we are working for his glory, God assists us in the matter. God values the spread of his glory. And for all those who work for that glory, he will come alongside and strengthen and guide and help. So, are you serving him? Are you concerned for his glory? If so, you can be more confident based on the promises just of this text that God is willing and anxious to help. Let me have a little side note here on the matter. It's not uncommon to have anxious thoughts even as a Christian, right? To be concerned about our circumstances for one reason or another. That is very common, which is why the Bible is full of encouragement for us weak people who have those anxious thoughts from time to time. I want you to understand something about the loving God we have who, who desires to meet our needs as his children, as his servants. God has a plan to use you for his glory and it includes ups and downs throughout your life. But God is on both sides and on top and bottom of those things. Nothing is going to happen to you outside the particular meticulous will of God. You can be confident that something is not going to happen that's out of God's purview. Or some way snuck in the back door and God didn't see it coming. No. It is different for those of us who follow Christ. All things we read of in Romans 8 work together for good. You can be confident in God. So the reasons that God will help you is because he's a loving God who loves you. It's because we are his servants serving his need, not his need, his desire. Thirdly, look at verse 126. I'm certain you've said these words to God before. It's time for the Lord to act. You ever had those words on your mind or coming out of your mouth with God? God, I'm about done here. It's time for you to act. God, your name has been shamed long enough. It's time for you to act. God, we've, we've done everything we can. It's time for you to act. You may want to underline that verse. It's time for you to act. It is a wonderful encouragement to read through the scriptures and look at God's responses to the prayers 
of his needy people who have prayed this prayer. God, it's time to act. Think of Noah. You think he was a little concerned about his circumstances? It's time to act, God. How about Abraham? I'm 99, God, if you didn't keep track of things. It's past time to act. Joseph, Hannah, David, Daniel, the early disciples. There's record of each of them saying these same kinds of things. God, you must act. And the glorious thing is that God takes joy and glory in supporting and acting on behalf of those he loves. He wants to do this for us. You say, well, I've asked plenty of times. Maybe I haven't used the right words, so I'll try those words. Uh, let me give you some encouragement here. If you want God to act on your behalf, you need to be sure your interest is for his glory and not your own. For his glory, not your comfort. Can you say that in your prayer, honestly? Lord, this is, as far as I can tell, I'm praying this for your glory. For the good of my children, for the good of my neighbors, for the good of our church, you must act. If it's for your personal glory, your personal comfort, <laughs> probably not going to happen right away or ever. So examine your prayers, examine the motives behind your prayers. Maybe talk to somebody that you trust about your prayers and your wishes and have them evaluate those things for you. This brings us to the last two verses of this Ion stanza, verses 127-128. Seems that these wrap up the context here pretty well. Because of all that I've said, God, about you, about your faithfulness to your people, about how you've offered ways that we can walk. In light of all that, God, listen, I love your commandments. I love them more than gold, more than fine gold. I know you've been faithful in laying out the detail of your will for me in your word. I love your commandments. I know this is the path I should walk. I know you've given me direction, support, help, guidance through this word you've revealed. I love your commandments. And then verse 128, therefore, therefore there's not going to be any question about your precepts being right or wrong. I'm not going to follow false ways. God, I'm going with you. Have you ever been led astray by God or his word? I doubt it. This is the summary, the conclusion of the matter, verses 127, 128. Are you as committed as the psalmist that God has in fact revealed his loving will 
Are you committed to following these clear designs of God in his word as much as the psalmist? Friends, be determined to walk with God. Be determined to seek his help. We have a wonderful God who is anxious to do these things for us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I think everybody in this room struggles with double-mindedness from time to time. Sometimes it's more intense of a struggle than others. Usually, when we're by ourselves, those thoughts have their most influence. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would draw our hearts to your word, that we would find you in the scriptures to be faithful and loving and true to those who serve you, to those who follow you with their whole heart. We ask for your strength to do those things. God, keep us from being distracted by the world, being unconvinced of the greatness of God. Holy Spirit, only you can do this work in us. Bring us to the point of repentance for following our own schemes, our own ways, our own wisdom. Help us to submit to you, to your word, to your spirit. Father, as a church, we want to gather around one another and direct each other to the scriptures, encourage one another with prayer and spiritual support. Bless us, Father, as we walk with one another towards Christ in submission to the Holy Spirit and the revealed word. God, we acknowledge our deep need. We're thankful for your clear word. Bless us in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.